All right, Mark. Mark. Uh, Mark is the first gospel out the gate. It's the first track. It's short. It's blessedly short. Uh, and it's going to be over soon. We're already in chapter 9. It's only 15 chapters in Mark. And it races at this point on to the crucifixion and the resurrection. Now, one of the things that, that uh, there's a sensitivity to the author, and I want you to get excited about this. There's a narrative, a sensitivity that the author has about getting his point across and, get, and communicating to you, communicating to this early Greek world, communicating to Greeks and Jews, communicating to, to Romans, and all sorts of different people across the Roman Empire to communicate to them a thesis that he had been a witness to the presence of the living God, the Son of God. Like, he wanted people to know that. And he was eager about it. And we, we, we know, at least early church tradition tells us, that Peter was responsible for this one. That Peter, Peter tells the story, and John Mark, who is who's named after, records it. The Greek is average to Midland. It's not great Greek. It's not an educated Greek uh, uh, kind of language. That happens in Luke. And, and uh, it's not... It's, it's, it's an everyman's, it's a journeyman's, it's a, an everyman's gospel. It, it's meant to be easily digested and handed out. And we've seen that there is a compelling, and perhaps not compelling to all of you, but I think a very compelling argument slowly being fabricated, so, so, not fabricated, it's not the word, assembled, slowly being uh, constructed. And, and the argument is that Something new has happened in all of creation and space and time. God has become man. Something new, some new event has happened from outside of what we call reality. God has come. And now, and now as Christ now moves towards a cross, towards an execution, towards his own murder, towards suffering, towards all this darkness, he begins to tell secrets about secret things about what his kingdom is like. And he starts to create more and more confusion. And Mark's aware of that. So what we're going to do, we're going to read three, they happen in a sequence, three, and this is a favorite number for Mark in his assembling of his narrative. There's three different events that happen here. And each one, the disciples are clueless. The disciples are clouded. They don't get all of his closest friends, the men to whom he's entrusting his kingdom, the ones who have been working with him and for him in close proximity for years, don't get it. They don't see who he is. They don't see what he's doing. They don't understand why. They're clueless. They're clueless. Now, they assembled these narratives. They're a part of creating them, and they wanted you to know how clueless they were. And why? Why would they want you to know? Why would they want you to identify? Well, you know, let's say I'm going to lead you, Tucker. I'm going to say, I'm going to lead you somewhere. And by the way, I had no idea where I was going when I was going this way. Christianity and the early biblical Christianity that claims that Jesus Christ is the Son of God is making such a spectacular claim, is, making, is taking all of the kingdoms of the earth and toppling them over <laughs> and turning them on their head. And it's so revolutionary that you're not going to get it sometimes. 
You're going to sit here confused. You're going to feel confused. And the disciples, the people who wrote this stuff, they're, they're sidling up in the long D-pack and saying, get it, I get it. We get why you don't get it. It happens. And sometimes you don't get it, D-pack. I know, but sometimes I don't get it. We all go through periods of time when we don't get it. All right, let's read it. We're going we're gonna to notice that we're going to read the text now, and I want to, and you'll see there's three crises. They, one, they don't get the cross. Two, they don't get humility. Uh, and three, they don't get, uh, and I, I, I want to say, we'll put, we'll put the word unity. That's the, probably the best one we can do. So they don't get the unity of the unity of people, believers. They don't get the humility of, the, of how, what it means to follow God and new leadership, and they don't get the cross that he has to die. So let's read this, and, and then I'm going to pray for wisdom for all of us together to get it. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, uh, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Let's pray. Father, we pray for uh, wisdom for our pastor, for the one who speaks because he needs it so much. But we realize, all of us together, we all need wisdom. It's just not, wisdom doesn't belong to me. I, I have no special wisdom at all. And, uh, but together, we need the wisdom of our God. We, we all cry out together, open the Bible to us and show us what the Bible says, what you say in your word, and uh, show it to our hearts. And we pray it in Christ. Amen. So um, how many of you are familiar with... Um, Plato's Cave. Anybody ever heard of Plato's Cave? Anybody at all? Plato's Cave. All right, well, we got one person, but 
Plato's cave. Okay, so Plato was trying to explain to everybody why they didn't understand what he was saying. And he was saying that there was a pure world of where everything, all forms are perfect. So there was a pure world where there were chair, the perfect form, form, that's a technical word, form of a chair. But this is what he said. This world is like we're in a cave. And we're all chained in the cave. And the reality is behind us, like ultimate reality is behind us. And it's casting shadows on the wall. And that's the world we see around us. And all we see in this world are shadows of true things from above, true things from eternity, true things from the mind, the logos, the mind of God. And what he was saying was we're trapped in the cave and we need, we need to be liberated. We need to, and, and what philosophy does, he says, it liberates us so that we can turn and see the forms and understand what's truly there. But meanwhile, everybody all around you uh, is chained. And the work of a philosopher, for example, is to loose your chains so you understand the, that this world and the, uh, is just shadows. These are just shadows. Reality and matter and physical world is just a shadow of ultimate truth. Now, um, I don't believe any of that. <laughs> There's truths packed in there about who God is and everything, but I like the idea, the problem that creates. You see the problem that creates about how you know things. Like, because a lot of us are caught up looking at shadows. We, we don't perceive. So just that what's called an epistemological problem, a knowing problem. We have a knowing problem. And, I, and so this is often as a, as a preacher, teacher, as a, as a pastor, as a, whatever it is I am in somebody's life from one moment in their lives as a facilitator, I'm wanting them to move to a place of, uh, how do I picture darkness? Oh, he doesn't have any arms. Um, all right, we're just going to say he's dead. Okay. To, I know this is a really, really shallow version of Christianity, but to enlightenment. We'll call it enlightenment. How does enlightenment happen? What, what creates the process? And what I mean by this is we have three events here. Three events. I'm going to die and be killed and rise. They don't get it. If you follow the narrative, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting because they do seem to understand he says he's going to die. They understand the mechanics of what he's saying, but they don't get its meaning, its significance, its reality. Its, they don't get any of that. So it's naturally what... Do, if, if, you're, if, if, if the captain says he's about to die, what do all the uh, subordinates start discussing? Who's taking over? Who's the boss now? And by the way, we just saw if you, in the narrative, if, I, if you find me boring, you can just read your Bible. And uh, I think that's acceptable. Don't you think that's acceptable? Anyway, so before this is the transfiguration. So I picture that Peter, James, and John, they weren't allowed to tell anybody. Christ told them, don't tell anybody about this. But I picture there's probably a little bit of this. I can't tell you, but you would not believe what we saw on the mountain. I'm the greatest. I'm the most important. And so they, what don't they get again? They don't get humility. They don't see, I mean, they're caught up in the, in the, in the excitement, perhaps, a little bit like there's about to be a vacancy for Messiah, and I'm coming up, I'm coming up for the job. You see? I want to be the pastor of the church or whatever. 
Then finally, uh, uh, as if this wasn't, at the, as if death, humiliation, and suffering of the cross and, and the resurrection, as if humility and living like a child, but also then competition. You know, like, well, wait a second. Somebody else, that's, they're not, they're, they're, they're not a part of our group and they're doing that. We told them not to do that because, you know, you got to get your market share, right? You got to get in and get your market share and have controlling interest in them. Don't we, Jesus? Don't we want to eliminate and address the problems of competition? Right? What does Jesus say? What, they don't get it again? They still don't get it, right? They're still clueless. They're still frustratingly, oh, so frustrating. You know what's interesting? What's interesting is that I think about what the strategies are of this generation. Seize the day. Grab all you can get, says this generation. Seize the day. And, and, and that strategy is ancient. It's not, it's not you know, go and die. It's not go and suffer. It's, not go, it's no, grab the glory. Grab success. Where's your success mentality? Um, leadership. Leadership. And leadership momentum by charisma and results. Amen? Charisma and results. That that's what ministry's all about. And then Christ starts talking about service and humility. And the greatest amongst you will be your servant. But these, these, these guys, these guys had, they had, they had a roadmap, didn't they? And the roadmap was seize the day, go for success, leadership by charisma and results, and importance and power and domination. And then finally, eliminate what? Eliminate. The competition. Eliminate the competition. You'll learn that uh, as we're visiting that this blackboard's more for me than it is for you. Just keeps me on, keeps me in track, keeps me thinking on, 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 the, on the subject. All right, what, I was going to do this. Let's do this. Um, where did I put my glasses? Over there. I want you to listen to something. So you have all this rejection of the cross, desire to be powerful, eliminate the competition. And listen to, listen to Peter a few, a few years later. Knowing you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory." Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. I'm reading for 1 Peter. I can read the whole book. It's just Peter goes from here to here. How, how do we join him? How do we make the move from loving our success and worshiping our work as an idol, from 
desiring to be the one with charisma and results and hating the people who are doing better than us. <laughs> How do we move from there? Uh, this is the riddle, by the way, which as a minister of the gospel, I'm constantly crawling at and scratching at and wanting and wanting to move us. And sometimes I get very discouraged. I really do. I get discouraged. I'm sitting there praying for every praying, praying. I'm thinking, is this going to do it? And, and, and is this, you know, what, when, when will I be able, Father? When, Father? I ask him, when will I be able by teaching or by example or by relationship or by the word or by prayer or worship to bring us out of this kind of darkness? Because it's darkness into the treasures and the newness of the kingdom. What's that going to look like? Can I do it? It's not mechanical. That's how we start at worship, right? It's not mechanical. It can't be manipulated. It's a totally, it's a, an enlightenment. That's one of the reasons why our last, the last movement of worship in your bulletins is renaissance. What does renaissance mean? New birth. You must, said Jesus, be born again. All right, now I think I should probably open my notes and see what I was going to say beforehand, what I was thinking about saying beforehand. Um, oh, I'm on track. Good, good. I want to work through these, these three of these for one minute, uh, for, for a little bit, and then we'll talk about strategies for new birth in our lives. Um, so we're going to leave the cave of shadows, hopefully by God's grace, we'll leave the cave of shadows today and enter into his kingdom. All right, first Christ, and Christ is aware that he must go to a cross, and I'm sorry that I crossed these out because it seems like I'm defeating my own point. Uh, Christ knows that he must go to a cross. What's going on here, and what do we do with the first idea? One of the most profoundly resistant ideas of this generation, and it's everywhere, is a prosperity gospel. And that is saying that I, I can, by hook or by crook, by a certain level of faith, I can activate a blessing that's going to give me everything I want in life. And I can, I can position myself, I can manipulate the, the, the events, I can manipulate faith so I get something. Maybe it's a romantic partner, maybe it's some sort of life goal, maybe it's some sort of inward fulfillment, Maybe it's some super satisfaction, and maybe it's just a lot of money and a big house, right? But I'm going to somehow get there. Now, we live in San Francisco, and I think our Father's blessing has been many of these things for us, right? And I, it's kind of amazing to me how God blesses us. But I think the sin, the pernicious crime of prosperity gospel is not the way our Father happens to bless beautifully so many of us. It's how we don't we don't see suffering as beautiful, holy, and valuable. There is a resurrection, but we don't, does, you get what I'm saying here? We don't, we don't see the cross as the root to which we get to blessing. In other words, this is for most of you as believers, and this is moving us, is we, and they don't get it. So what, what, why don't they get it? All right, let's go back to first century Judaism. Let's be, if we're there for a moment, everybody is under a yoke of bondage to the Roman government. The Jewish people have a story about being under a yoke of bondage in the past, right? In Egypt. 
And if you know your Bible tradition like they did, they expected to be rescued again. And there were stories and there were poems and there were anticipations and there were prophecies that one was coming to do just that, to somehow rescue. And so they're built up a messianic, apocalyptic expectation. In fact, it was so, so much fervor, people had already come up and said, I'm the Messiah! People had already done that. And it hadn't worked out well, put it that way. And, and they, they led rebellions. And all these three people positioned themselves to capitalize on the excitement of the age. Apocalyptic literature got really popular in the century before Christ. Uh, you've got the book of Enoch comes up. You've got all sorts of weird, bizarre prophecies about the future. and All these weird... People were, hey, you could make money on books back then, too, you know. You could make money on books, money on speaking, money on, and it was exciting, and there was anticipation something was going to happen, et cetera, et cetera. They, the disciples were caught up in that. They were excited. They were really excited. Can you imagine how much more excited they were when they saw Jesus, like, do amazing things? Like, wow, we're in. Man, we're, I mean, excitement's kind of growing for them. They're, they're committed. And then as Christ is obviously talking about something's about to really, really happen. Christ is like, okay, by the way, this is where, this is where things really get good. This is where the kingdom wins. They're going to kill me. Say what? Did you hear what he said? I don't know. What did he mean kill? What did, what's, what's, and they totally miss it. They want money, power, fame. Uh, they want success. They want to come out winning. They want to beat the Romans. They want to beat the bad guys. They want to, they want to see, and they don't know, and they could never suspect that the great enemy of death and sin and judgment and guilt was about to be killed. They, they had no, they had, their minds were too small. Their, their vision was too narrow. Their, their scope of their hope was too limited and too, too, too close because one had come to deliver them from death. <laughs> from this judgment of sin, guilt that was ripping their hearts apart for the things and shame that they had been, the fear that someday they would die themselves in ignominy or death and leave nothing behind, and who knows, enter the void, or somehow hope perhaps they could maybe go to some heaven of bliss, but who knew? And now Christ is here to secure, to say all that is yours in every part, and Peter would write words about the love of God and how secure and real it was from before the foundations of the world. They didn't get that Christ had to go to a cross. The Renaissance did not happen. They didn't get that they needed a cross, that they needed a Christ on the cross. They didn't understand that the crimes of unbelief, the crimes of a weak heart, a weak faith, the crimes of passion and sex and murder and, and hatred and jealousy, that these crimes and sins of lying before a holy God needed somebody to pay their penalty. They didn't see yet. They couldn't yet understand that they needed the blood of a lamb without blemish or spot. They didn't understand or see like they would see later that they needed a rescue for who they were and what they had done and what they would do. They didn't see they needed saving at a deeper level than their political realities. They hadn't moved here. Two, humility. Uh, Christ, I'm sorry, Christ 
humbles himself, his self, himself. Oh, I, I'll tell you what. Now, maybe you don't agree with me that Christ is the Son of God. Maybe you don't. Walk in the story for a second. They had walked and talked and eaten and, you know, shared the privy. I mean, they lived with this guy, right? And he's there, and he is the incarnation of an eternal love. He is from beyond all space and time. He is greater, bigger, and more powerful than a universe that's 100 billion light years across. And that's who he really is. And he's walking with them and talking with them. They bump shoulders. He's got B.O., they've got B.O. Everybody stank, right? Everybody stank. I guess if everybody stank, that's a good thing because you can't tell, right? But he took our stink on. Let me tell you something about this. What is that, what is that all a clue about what he, what he had done, who he had become? What had he actually done? He had humbled himself. He had humbled himself. It's hard to get a picture of this. Um, the little rescue dog that we're taking care of right now has fleas. And it's really annoying. And luckily, they don't bite me, but they bite Deepak. So I'm not really worried about them. Fleas don't like me for some reason. Uh, so I got a little flea collar to kill all the fleas, right? And I put a little flea collar on my dog, and the flea collar will eventually kill all the fleas because fleas deserve to die. I, I agree with that, right? Fleas deserve to die, right? They don't deserve to live. They deserve to die. Them and their eggs and their moms and their dads and their kids, they should all die. Well, let's say, though, that, that we could change fleas into something wonderful, fleas that would do little circuses for us, and, and there would be wonderful little pets. The fleas themselves would be wonderful, but, but, I have to become a flea and die under the foot, under the collar, under the new, the new dog collar. I have to die for the world of fleas. Anybody, anyone want to sign up for that? Anybody want to be a flea? Anybody want to crawl on a dog's butt? Anybody? Looking for food? No. None of us want this, right? None of us want this. That doesn't even begin to describe the gulf between us and a holy God. Peter, as he writes 1 Peter, his imagination and wonder is so big now. How did he do? He came. From before the foundations of the earth, he was aimed at Frankie and to love him and to love me and to rescue us. And so Christ comes and he, and he grabs a child. And by the way, the children were not thought of fondly back then. Uh, we live in a worship culture that worships children. Children back then were just a pain in the neck and were something that, you know, you, you, you were, it was kind of a gamble because you weren't sure they were going to make it. I mean, that's how bad it was. All. I mean, it's like kids were not worshipped like they are now. They had no power, they had no money, they had no authority, they had nothing they could do. Christ welcomes the child. Did you notice, did you notice how tender it is? What does, he, what does he do? What does he do? He hugs them. And he embraces them. Right in front of the disciples, he's like, this! Become like a child. And he has this picture. He positions in front of them that the child is closer 
to understand the humility. Christ had humbled himself. Will they understand they're not to be like this world, looking for leadership by charisma and results and power and domination and control? But instead, they were to humble themselves like Christ had humbled himself. How do you move from this death and darkness to this light? Because I just, you know, I just, it's just, it's dirty to get really close to people who are humble or who people who are of low station in life. I mean, homeless people stink. Are you going to embrace them? How humble are you willing to go? What do you think you deserve to not have to do? What service do you resent? Begrudge, right? And on what basis do you begrudge it? Or do I begrudge it? Or resent it? Finally. Oh, and by the way, one of the, one of the ways I do see this, I, well, let me apply this to me. I always, I, I always want to apply God's word to me as a pastor. Um, we live in the age of the celebrity pastor, right? And that if I am enough of a celebrity, this church will really grow, right? If I'm good-looking enough, speak well enough. I mean, I've got part of that down, but, you know, it's not. That was a joke. But we all kind of love the celebrity pastor, don't we? Because we, if, if we're part of a celebrity pastor's church, we're kind of a part of the celebrity, too. Not in our Savior's kingdom. Not in our Savior's kingdom. Not in my Savior's kingdom. Three, unity. I remember, um, every, I planted this in the second church I planted, and I thought things would be different out here. I came out here, and it's kind of funny, I'm sitting in a meeting with a pastor who's, who has uh, you know, over 1,000 people in his church, and I'm a church planter, and I hadn't even begun to plant the church. So how many people did I have in my church? Me. <laughs> One. McLaren had called me. That's about it. Jordan, Jordan was content. I mean, but it, so I'm sitting there in this meeting, and I know there's like one or two people that I might have, and I'm sitting there, and this guy looks at me, and he is unfriendly. He is resents that I'm there. He offers no help or assistance. He paints a picture that church planting will not happen in this city easily and it's doomed to failure. He talks about how other people have been super successful and you won't be. And, and no help, no kindness, no encouragement, and no come on down. I remember sitting there thinking, why are you afraid of me? Why don't you just let me fail then and encourage me along the way? What do you got to worry about? I've got nothing. Okay, I'm not exaggerating. I could lift that conversation. I had the same conversation in 1998 when I went to Atlanta. <laughs> it's amazing how fiercely turf people are with the kingdom. Get back. Get back. There's a limited number of Christians in this city, and I'm going to get as many as I can. Get back. Don't you touch him. He's a big giver. Get back. Get back. Um, 
it, it's discouraging. I, it's, I'll tell you, as a pastor and church planner, you're sitting there going, I've got nothing and you're afraid of me? I'm nobody. I have nothing. But it's all about turf and control. Did you hear John when he asked Jesus about it? Jesus, they're doing it over there. Now, some of you uh, may remember the passage from Luke. Christ says the same thing, but slightly different. He says, he who is not against me, I'm sorry, he who is not for me is against me. Does anybody remember that other text? He who is not for me is against me. It's a different saying. This is in the plural. Whoever is not for Christ is against him. Amen. If you're not for Jesus, then you're against him. There's no middle ground. This is in the plural. This is about denominations and churches. This is about groups. <laughs> Whoever is not for us is against us. That's what we tend to think, right? Us versus them. Win. Eliminate combination. Grab market share and win. What are we being called to here in San Francisco? To be praying for the success of others more than ourselves. Why not? It's a big kingdom. It's a big God. It's a big love in the cross. Why are we grasping for control over which we have something we have no control anyway? The kingdom of God. I challenge you to keep me challenged so I am praying regularly for the success of other pastors in our city and that their success, they be able to teach me what it is to follow God and to serve his people. Amen? Why not? Because whoever's not against us is what? For us. And the fractiousness and the compassion competition and the, and the want to beat. I mean, look, let's face it. There's nothing better in this world, in this world's darkness. There's nothing better in this world, in this world's darkness, than to be in a position where other people envy you. That's your biggest win. Amen? Come on, that's what a lot of guys in the tech world are aiming for. Because a lot of them are geeks and nobody ever envied them at all. And now they've got a lot of money and a lot of power and a lot of control. And what does everybody do now? Everybody envies them, and they drink deep. How do we move from here to here? Um, all right, I'm going to talk about three different, two different, three different things, and then we'll be done. First, you've got, it's, there's just you. What I mean is, you... Um, and the way this works is you need to be, you need to come to God as a sinner and call out to him to have grace and mercy on who you are. And you can do it even if you don't understand a blithering thing. God loves idiots. Isn't that, doesn't that make you feel better? It makes me feel better. I'm just an idiot with an education. I'm not any better than you. If you don't get it, if you're on the other side of enlightenment and the awareness going on where you know you are a sinner and that you need to be saved, <laughs> to be rescued, to be made something new, bright, shiny, and clean, and, that's, and you're going to move from death into life, from the old self to the new self, from, and this transformation, then you, what you need to do, all you need to do is cry out to this God to rescue you, love you, and show you. That's it. You need to sign up, and you will become like Peter one day. You'll be, you will get it. I know what it's like not to get it. I remember that. 
I remember being over here and just being like, what the heck are they all talking about? And then I remember walking over here going, oh, I get it now. Oh, I get it now. <laughs> Sometimes I think when you come to church a lot and you don't really get what's going on, and I'm talking about the marvelous grace of Jesus Christ, you're a little bit like this. Uh, there's a story of a, of a wall on the street, a big fence, and there's a little circle on the fence. And the sign over the circle, the little hole in the fence says, do not look in here. Okay? And you can hear, some, you can hear a bunch of people chanting on the other side, 15, 15, 15. That walks by, he goes, 15, 15, 15. Looks at the sign, do not look in here. So what does he do? What would you do? Looks in there, and somebody pokes him in the eye. He's sitting there hurting, and this is what he hears. 16, 16, 16. <laughs> Sometimes that's going to be your experience at church. You're like, what are they all talking about? What are they all talking about? What are they keep talking about wanting to lead people to Jesus? And then one day you're like, oh, I get it now. They were talking about me. <laughs> and I didn't even know it. I just kept coming. <laughs> and they were talking about me. <laughs> I hope that's your story. At some point, you'll have that story. Some of you will get caught later in life. You get deceived into the old ways and you get distracted. Anybody like this? You get confused. You're like, well, I'm at work, and I've got this job to do, and I've got, oh, so my job is to eliminate competition, be the best, sexiest, most powerful leader I can, and to let everybody know how good I am, and to seize the day and be successful. And that, that creeps into your spiritual life, and it creeps into your heart, and it's death to your soul. What do you need to do for you that's why we come to the table every week, to remind ourselves we're sinners saved by his blood and body. That's why, this, that's why church is not a, a religious duty. It's an opportunity to move, to keep moving the ball down the field, right? To keep moving ourselves towards life, to keep moving our, because we're in a battle between light and darkness at times. We had the new birth I was describing, but we haven't moved forward with it. Second, you and other people. Oh, I, that was my second point. You, you moving from where you have been to where you are. You already, you already know Christ and moving forward. The third point is you and others. For some of us, we have to develop this last, this last position here that we, have, we, we stand in Christ's position for a moment where we are telling people about Jesus, but they don't get it. Doesn't that make you want to give up sometimes? Doesn't it just frustrate you, the, how blind people can be? What's Christ teaching you? Don't be frustrated. They didn't understand me. They ain't going to understand you. Keep on as witnesses, coaches, mentors, people standing along the way, walking along the way. Stand there. Serve. Serve. Go, go down and, we, and we become this person Become a person available to the city, city impact. Be, you know, be, become available for children's ministry. You know what children's ministry is? It's standing you with another, a child 
walking them from darkness to what? You're being a part of them, their renaissance and their new birth. I owe so much to what what Sunday school teachers taught me and people working with children. That's a part of that work. It works of service and even the setup of chairs. Don't be afraid of being humbled because you then become one of the people who is walking others into church, into the community, into life. And, and you're just standing there, your hospitality baskets and, and, uh, and welcoming people into your home and setting up chairs and helping with kids and welcoming people you don't know or see. And, and then at work, you know, giving witness to God about how God, what God is doing and being a riddle at times. Don't be afraid to be a riddle that's not understood. It's fine. Because understanding comes from the Lord. Understanding comes by the Holy Spirit. Understanding's coming when fire comes from heaven for, the, for Peter. And Peter's going to be taken from a rustic, uh, you know, a rustic idiot, a rustic knucklehead who's always mouthing off and doing the wrong thing and correcting Jesus and not understanding the cross and wanting to be the boss and wanting to stop other people to be what? A preacher on fire, ready to die for Jesus and to humble himself. For whom love has so conquered him and the cross has so conquered his soul, he's a new man. He moved from death to life. Um, If you're in the cave looking at the shadows, this is the time to break your chains. Come to Jesus in prayer. Break your chains. Come to Jesus by faith. Break the chains of people around you. And turn to the light. Let's pray. I thank you for my people. I thank you for my brothers and sisters. And I thank you for your kindness, your love, your mercy to me. I thank you that all the times I didn't understand the cross or didn't want to humble myself or wanted to beat other people, beat the competition. And there you were, just like you were with your disciples, tenderly challenging me, showing me again, showing us again. Father, I pray for the journey. I pray for the journey of enlightenment, of renaissance, of rebirth and being born again that we're on. And I pray for those who are still just don't get it. Let them get it. Poke them in the eye. Father, awaken them. Awaken your whole city, this whole city to Christ, your son. Father, um, we pray for those who have grown dull in the gospel, those who have gotten cynical and skeptical and hard-hearted. Take mercy on us when we get like that and show us your kingdom truths again. Show us your kingdom light. Show us these demonic dark tactics and expose them for what they are. Father, Father, if there's people we could be helping, people we could be walking with, make us witnesses to the light and break our chains. We pray it in Christ. Amen. Okay, let's, on on the night that Jesus was betrayed, on the night that his friends turned against him and his friends betrayed him, on that night he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you, take and eat. While he was having supper with them, and after he had broken the bread and given thanks, 
he also took a cup of wine and he poured the wine out and he said, and he passed it around. He said, this is my blood. This is the cup of the covenant. This is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. Christ humbled himself for all his disciples in unity to go to the cross. Now, we, we have to walk this kingdom path together. We only celebrate communion as a group. You know that? Only as a group because of the unity of the body. We have to come down this road of enlightenment together and put our trust in Jesus and keep our trust in Jesus and affirm our trust in Jesus. If you know Jesus, this is your table. If this is your kingdom, you're a part of the kingdom of Christ, this is your table. If you know Jesus, this is your table. But I'm going to put up a fence. I'm going to warn some people off. Some people here may not be allowed to come to the table. And you're not allowed to come to the table if you think you're a good person. If you haven't humbled yourself to recognize your need for the cross and your need for the body, then this is not your table. No good people are allowed at the table, only sinners. That's why it's my favorite table. Finally, if you're a skeptic and you still, the, the, the claims of the gospel have yet to be proved to your heart or your mind or your soul, and you look at this and you're going to go, I'm not sure about this, Chris. I'm not sure if I believe. If today you're coming to belief, if you're heading to belief, let's talk. But I want you to watch us. You want you to watch uh, Deepak. I want you to watch Megan. I want you to watch these people coming to the table to say, we know God and we're loved by him. And I want you to hope for that kind of knowledge yourself. Okay? Let's enter at a time of, of controlled confusion. Moderated chaos. I love chaos. Um, okay, so not all of you do. So let me give you a pathway. So what we're going to do is uh, we're going to say the Apostles' Creed, but we're going to stay where we are because, so we can read it together. We're going to stand and read that. Then, then... I want you to come forward. I want you to come forward and get a, get a cup of wine or grape juice. It's the lighter colored juice in the back. And we, have, well, we also have gluten-free, uh, a gluten-free Jesus for those who prefer that. And, and so, and this is wheat. And what we're going to do is we're going to uh, come get your bread and your, and, your, and your wine and then go back to your seat uh, as we're singing. Because we're going to be singing the final song and then we'll be done today. Just a reminder again, we're at the Wickham next week. And uh, Wickham blowout, what? Permanently. Permanently at the Wickham. Um, what are we doing right now? The Apostles' Creed. Will you stand, please? Christian, will you tell me, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, 
the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.